everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Console RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Cole Swanson. Cole, how's your week going? It's going well. I'm excited to talk about a pretty relevant topic. I think uh, I think everybody's going to be pretty interested in this one, because it's literally all anybody's talking about, at least in, in my world it is. Yes, so we're going to be going over influenza going to be talking about the treatment options, kind of how they come up with some of the names. Cole's going to hit us with some history, and we're also going to talk about vaccinations and review a real quick patient case as well. So We're also going to dispel a few myths, potentially. Thimerosal, have you heard of that? So we'll uh, we'll get a little controversial, I think, as we go through. Definitely. See, uh, see how it goes. See if we'll get some negative press. Yeah. But... Um, as far as the flu this year, uh, I think as everybody knows, it's been pretty bad, especially if you're working in the healthcare world. Um, you know, it's been pretty significant. It's pretty much all anybody's coming in for is freaking out about the flu. They want Tamiflu prophylaxis or they want to be treated with Tamiflu. Um, the emergency rooms are already on shortages of normal saline, 100 milliliter mini bags because of the hurricanes from this past year and then they're getting overrun with um, flu patients so it's kind of a pretty big issue so we're going to talk about why this happens and um, we're kind of on the the tail end of it so hopefully this can be a FYI for next year for you guys but it has been a bad flu season Um, generally speaking the flu is actually pretty bad Um, I I don't think, especially the lay lay public, I don't think they generally realize how bad it is, but a hundred years ago this year was the, um, Spanish flu, the pandemic of 1918. And I don't know how much you guys have looked into it, but that was a pretty bad year for the flu. Um, they don't really know how many people died for sure, because there wasn't great medical records kept a hundred years ago. Uh, but they estimate between 20 and 50 million people died that year. Um, and some estimates are upwards of 100 million, uh, 675,000 Americans. So uh, that, that's pretty significant. The issue with that one, and that was um, a form of H1N1, that was. Um, and the issue was it was attacking healthy people, um, in particular servicemen, and taking them down. And that's not generally what we see with the flu. With the flu, we'll talk about it, but it's usually um, elderly patients or really young patients that are really high risk. But that's why that was so bad. Um, there's been some other pandemics that have come up um, in years since, in 57 and 58. There was a pandemic killed around 2 million people, um, about 70,000 in the U.S. In 68, 69, killed 100 million people, about 34,000 Americans. And then most recently, we had the swine flu uh, pandemic in 2009. Everybody remembers that. Um, but only about 12,000 Americans died, which is still a lot. Um, but I guess compared to other pandemics, it's it's not terrible. Um, and I should point out that currently we're in an epidemic, which I'll talk about the definitions of those in a little while. But it's not quite a pandemic yet this year. That's good. So in regards to how the actual virus replicates, because I do think that it's important to have a, a basic understanding, which I guess I would classify my understanding as is pretty basic probably. <laughs> There's a lot to the flu that I didn't realize. It's it's pretty uh, complex. It's a very interesting virus, yeah, honestly. for sure. And so the way the virus is contracted, it's, it's transported through respiratory particles, so someone sneezes, coughing, whatever, and it goes uh, in gets on the person that is healthy at the time, goes through the respiratory tract, and it can bind to the epithelial lining cells, and it's actually taken inside of the, the cell itself. And the virus is con- contains this envelope glycoprotein that has all the genetic material uh, inside of it, and then it has these two enzymes, or they sometimes they're referred to as spikes. Uh, there's one called... Uh, hemagglutinin i hope i'm probably butchering that but um the other spike and they call it the h spike others is uh the other one is neuraminidase Mm -hmm. which is the n spike and so that's kind of the makeup of the virus and when it gets taken inside of the cell it releases the some of its genetic material which then can make its way inside the cell's nucleus and it can basically hijack the system and replicate itself and then some of that genetic material can then go to ribosomes 
and start producing some of these proteins or these these spikes, if you will. And the Golgi apparatus can then package everything nice and neat for the virus to be transported back up to the cell surface and then where it's assembled and then it can leave leave the cell. Now, the reason for these spikes on the outside of the, the virus mm-hmm. is when it first comes in contact with one of these cells, with a host cell, it the end spike is what binds to these receptors on side of the host cell and then it's taken inside of the cell from there. It gets through the membrane that way. So as this, as the new virus, the new progeny are leaving the the host cell that first start replicating the virus, as they're leaving, it can rebind to those same receptors on the same cell. But the 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 H spikes rather will cause this uh, the, the receptor to be destroyed, and then the virus is released, and so it can get back out of the cell very easily and then it can go infect other host cells and start replicating and, and keep going. And so when they're referring to the actual virus, you'll hear them referred to by, you know, like for instance, H1N1, that's referring to these subtypes on influenza A virus. Mm-hmm. So on the H spikes can have H1, H2, H3, and then the, the, two, subtype, the two subtypes of the, the N spikes could be N1 and N2. And that's how they come about with the nomenclature. And then there's different like variants of those right. particular viruses. Right. And keep that neuramidase in mind because uh, when we talk about the antivirals available, that's what they act on. But um, as far as the one that we're dealing with this year, um, it's mainly the H3N2, which is a type of influenza A virus. So as far as some stats for what we're just dealing with this year, um, it's with the week ending in January 13th, which was the last time as of today that the CDC put out a report, uh, about 9.7% of deaths that occurred in the U.S. overall were related to um, or attributable to pneumonia or influenza. And that's kind of how they measure how serious the um, flu outbreak is. And so that met the criteria for an epidemic. So that's what we're dealing with now um, is a flu epidemic, which the last epidemic we had was in 2015, so not too long ago. Um, But it's not a pandemic. So there is a significant difference. We always think of pandemic being worse. uh, But what would classify an outbreak as a pandemic would be if there's a novel um, strain of the flu and it crossed continents. So it was present on two different continents. Um, the swine flu would be the the last example of that back in 2009. So it's not a pandemic. Um, and the CDC, as far as I could tell, hasn't really put out overall death tolls so far this year. Um, we know it's a lot. Um, if you wanted to find that, you could go to your individual state's uh, monitoring page, which is on cdc.gov, and it would actually pull up exactly how many people have um, died due to the flu this year so far and last week and all that kind of stuff um they do say the pediatric deaths are so far 53 um which is not good at all um so there's been 53 pediatric deaths this year they also mentioned that um the rates of visits of doctor visits for influenza-like illnesses are over three times higher than normal um as of the week ending january 13th they're about 7.1 percent whereas baseline is about 2.2 percent so, yeah, we're dealing with a pretty serious flu season. Um, hopefully it's on the tail end and it's coming to an end. Um, but that H3N2, about 90% of the, the um, diagnosed cases that they subtyped have be, been H3N2 as opposed to a different influenza A or any influenza Bs. Those are a lot less common this year. Okay, and I'm going to I gotta retract what I just said about the mechanism because I actually misspoke. So it's actually the the H spike that's responsible for attaching to the host cell receptor. So for all of you who are just losing your minds at my telling you the don't wrong email thing, us. Don't email us. I'm, I caught it. So I realized what I said after I said it. So <laughs> uh, make sure uh, it, you recognize that the H spike is what actually binds the receptor. And then again, if it's leaving the host cell, it still can bind to the same receptor, which would essentially trap the virus and be pulled back into the host cell. But that neuraminidase is what's responsible for uh, cleaving that host cell receptor and allowing the virus, the the new virus, the virus progeny to be transported to another part of the body to infect another cell. 
That makes sense. So yeah, and and so that's the pathogenesis of the flu. Um, but how does it generally look, and why is it seasonal? That's one question that actually was asked of me in the pharmacy. Why does it occur during these colder winter months? Um, and it turns out there's not really a good explanation for it. There's some theories, but they don't know for sure why. Like I said, it's a very complex um, virus, and it literally mutates and changes every year. Uh, one of the theories is that around um, winter time, fall, winter, when it's colder, uh, it's less humid, and the droplets are able to thrive a little bit more. In a humid environment, um, the droplets from someone um, who's contagious might bind to water in the air and become heavy or too big to infect. Um, but in the cold and dry climate, they're uh, much more contagious. And like you said, that's usually how it's transmitted. Um, there is a chance that you could get it from touching um, if someone has recently coughed or um, touched something with a contagious hand, but it's more often spread through talking or interacting or hugging or you know, kissing, whatever, um, someone who's, who's contagious. And as far as presentation, um, people frequently present differently, but basically um, you could be contagious up to a day before you actually have symptoms um, and for about five to seven days after becoming sick. Some people are shorter than that, some people are longer, um, but that's why it's really important to practice those um, non-pharmacologic um, other ways of preventing outbreaks by washing your hands and if you're around people who are infected, um, just being careful and, and making sure you're not coming in close contact with people throughout that time. So obviously the, uh, the best way to prevent the flu and, and real quick too, I will throw this in there. It is seasonal for the most part, but there is, uh, there are cases where the flu will show up in random times. Mm-hmm. I, I know I've actually dispensed the Tamiflu, uh, in the summer one time, just yeah. very randomly. So it is possible. And in different climates, it does actually stay around year round, stay around. Yeah. Year round. It's just in the climate that we're in here, it's, it's very seasonal. And so the, the best way to prevent the flu uh, besides washing hands, staying away from people who are coughing and not covering their mouth, things like that, uh, would be vaccination. And so there's a few different vaccines available now, different brands of the flu vaccine, uh, the most common types is the regular trivalent, like we've had for a while. And then now there's the quadrivalent as well. So it covers an extra uh, B strain, I believe, of the um, a potential viruses that could cause the seasonal flu that year. And so you get more strains covered. I haven't seen any solid data that shows that that extra strain stops a significant more uh, number of flu cases. I don't know that that data is available um, if you guys know of any, please send it our way because we'd love to include it in mm-hmm. a future talk. Um, the live vaccine that was the nasal mist is no longer available, at least for now. And uh, it seemed to lost its it lost its potency over time. Uh, I don't really know that it's been discovered why, but they are definitely looking at it. And I know the company that makes it wants to re-release it. So I'm sure they're going to be trying to tweak things and seeing if they can go back. Because at one point, a couple of years ago, uh, a few years ago maybe now, it was actually the preferred agent uh, for children. And so now it's completely been removed off the market. So it's kind of interesting how that lost its effectiveness. Right. Uh, so there's different diff- different companies that make the trivalent and quadrivalent. Uh, some of them have different age ranges, uh, You know, whether some may be starting at 7, some may be starting in is it 18. There's different things like that. So you can kind of... Uh, look at the package and start to see which which brand covers what age group. But for the most part, if you're thinking about adults especially, um, the 18 to 64-year-olds are all have you know about the same number of potential vaccines uh, or brands of the flu, vi- flu vaccine. So where it starts to change up is when you get to 65 and older, there are two different brands that are available uh, for patients who are 65 and over only. So they're exclusively available uh, for that age range. And so the high-dose vaccine, and I think we've covered this briefly in another podcast. I think podcast, we touched on it, yeah. But, um, you know, repetition, so we'll go over it again. The, uh, the high-dose, uh, flu zone high-dose, is basically four times the, the antigen that a regular trivalent vaccine has. And uh, so you get a higher dose because the thinking is if 
if you have a weaning immune system as you get older, hopefully if you give more of the antigen, you get more of an immune response, makes it more immunogenic. And the other one is called Fluad, which is still a trivalent vaccine, but they have a squalene emulsion adjuvant that's added to it. And the thought process there is that the adjuvant can uh, make the vaccine more immunogenic and give a better immune response. So when these have actually been studied, they Fluad was compared directly to the influenza vaccine, uh, the trivalent vaccine, and it was found to be non-inferior, which is great. However, it didn't meet the criteria for superiority. And so it is approved only for patients 65 and over, but it's basically the same as giving them a regular trivalent vaccine. And one of the concerns is the squalene emulsion could potentially cause some more localized reactions and uh, things like that. So a lot of people will opt to just get the regular trivalent vaccine or administer the trivalent vaccine if you're picking the brand for the patient. Mm -hmm. Um, With the Fluzone High Dose, now that one has also been compared to standard dosing flu vaccines, and that one was statistically better than the regular. The number needed to treat was 218, and so it is pretty substantial how many people we need to treat to prevent one extra case compared to regular influenza vaccine. Uh, But when they did a cost-benefit analysis, I believe around 2014 or so, uh, they did a cost-benefit analysis, and it was shown to be cost-effective because realistically the cost difference isn't that much between the regular and the high dose. And so if you can keep one person out of the hospital, then it does seem to be a cost benefit for sure. uh, even um, Medicare patients. So obviously 65 and over, most of them are going to have the vaccine under the Medicare. So know that there's a difference between the vaccines and know why you're picking one over the other. Hopefully we'll have more data soon uh, showing whether or not the quadrivalent is really worth the little bit of extra money. It's not much more, maybe like 7 or 8 $9, something like mm-hmm. that. But um, hopefully we'll have more data with quad. And then the other thing to consider is, I'm very curious to see within the next five to 10 years, if, if even that long, they, they don't start recommending a second dose every season. I think so. Um, I have seen some people discussing whether or not the vaccine kind of weans over the course of the season. But the problem is, is we don't really know when it's going to be in full swing. So the CDC wants us to get the vaccine around October mm-hmm. or before October 31st. I would say Halloween. Right. And but what if the flu season like this year doesn't start until now? Right. Then maybe that that vaccine is kind of weaned a little bit and we don't have the same protection as we did if, if we started getting flu cases in November. Right. Uh, there was a, one of my professors, um, Dr. Wayne Wirt, and you'll uh, hopefully get to hear from <laughs> that brilliant man uh, here pretty pretty soon, a couple weeks, because um, he's, he's like a genius. So we're really trying to get him on here. Uh, he was telling me about a provider he had seen one time that was giving himself uh, three flu shots a season. He'd give one in August, <laughs> one in December, and then one again in February to make sure he was covered. So zero evidence to provide to right. support that, but I just thought that was pretty funny that yeah, uh, pretty funny. he was kind of experimenting on himself. Yeah, and I mean, with that with that Spanish flu, it hit in the fall. So, you know, you really never know. And this year, like you said, it hit in the spring. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if the, once more and more data is collected, more research is done. I'd be curious. I'll be curious to see if if they actually present a, a recommendation for possibly getting two different doses of the flu vaccine per season. Uh, we'll see. And then there's going to be a lot of pushback from people who are saying that the CDC is just recommending that for financial purposes mm-hmm. and things like that, which obviously will bring the drug companies more money and. Uh, all that stuff. So it's going to be a lot of political yeah. things thrown in there too, but we'll see. Yeah. And before we get into controversy, I did want to mention, um, so the trivalent, just so you know, covers H1N1, H3N2, which is uh, influenza A. And then it covers a strain of influenza B. The quadrivalent just adds on one extra um, coverage for a strain of influenza B. That's basically what it does. So now the flu vaccine. Oh, how it remains controversial for whatever reason. Um, so we know as healthcare professionals that are generally as healthcare professionals, we're going to recommend it to virtually, um, anyone who it's okay to give it in, but, um, the public doesn't always see it that way. 
um, especially when their PubMed is um, Facebook. Um, <laughs> so as far as the effectiveness, a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's not worth getting because it's not even effective. Okay, so it wasn't the most effective this year. The, CD ha- the CDC hasn't actually put out anything official, I, as far as I could tell. If you know, let me know. For this year of how effective it was, some people are estimating 30%, which wouldn't be that terrible. Canada is estimating that their flu vaccine was about 10 to 20% effective. Um, and the CDC says that on a normal year, it's going to be about 40 to 60% effective. So obviously, it's lower than we want. But... Still, if I'm looking at, well, I might have to take three days off work um, and lose that income or take sick days or whatever, I think it's worth it for me to get a flu vaccine that's probably going to be free. If I'm an elderly patient who's high risk for pneumonia or I'm a, or I'm a parent who knows that my kid um, is high risk for complications from the flu, I think it's going to be worth it to, to decrease my chances by 20% even on a low year. Not only that... They've shown that if you do get the vaccine, that your symptoms will potentially be milder um, than if you hadn't gotten the vaccine. So there's a few there's a few little um, points that you can give because you're always going to get those patients who've done their research and they're so educated and you know they're they're going to spit all this stuff out at you. And you know a lot of times the easiest thing to say is, well, the CDC recommends it, so get your flu vaccine. But um, there's actually there's actually data behind it. So that's probably the less controversial portion. Then there's thimerosal. So um, basically, thimerosal is a preservative that they have traditionally put in the flu vaccine, obviously, to prevent microbial growth. Um, And there's a lot of controversy around it for a couple of reasons. One, people look at it and say, wait a minute, this, this stuff is loaded down with mercury. We know that mercury is bad for you, so the CDC must be trying to kill us. Um, I don't think so. The other one is that the flu vaccine and potentially because of thimerosal may cause uh, autism in children. So let's talk about that for a second. Thimerosal um, is metabolized. One of its metabolites is um, a form of mercury. That being said, there's actually two different um, forms of mercury readily available. And for some reason, I'm having a lot of trouble saying the word mercury. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, work on it. Yes, I'm working on it. Um, but when you think of mercury being harmful and what you get from fish and that sort of thing, what you're thinking of is methyl mercury. I cannot say mercury is methyl mercury. Um, thimerosal is metabolized into ethyl mercury, so a different um, ester form, a different salt form of mercury. And there's a big difference. Methyl mercury, the dangerous one, um, accumulates in your body. It has a long half life of about a month and a half. And from what I understand, I don't think that some of it is ever truly um, removed or excreted from your body. Could be wrong about that. Either way, it it accumulates and causes issues. We know that. Ethylmercury has a much shorter half-life of about a week. Um, And they've looked into it, and um, they have shown that it is safe, um, especially in the amounts that they give in a flu vaccine, or even if you get multiple vaccines and receive it, that it's safe. Um, so anytime you see on Facebook, people posting like, oh, this is four times the amount of allowable mercury for, um, a child. This is like a lethal dose. The CDC shouldn't be doing this. It's unethical. They're just trying to make money. Um, you can't compare methyl mercury and ethyl mercury. So that's the big thing that I have to say about that. Um, you have any comment on that? Yeah, I think it's just, it's one of those things that, we have a very a lot of times healthcare professionals have a very quick response when they're talking to someone who's a an anti-vaxer if you will they get that name sometimes <laughs> which i think is kind of funny but when we had our first initial response is you must be kind of stupid i'm not going to talk to you and they just really dismiss them the problem is is a lot of these patients or these people who are you know consider themselves or are considered anti-vaxers like they're not necessarily coming at it from a bad point of view. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important to on how we address the issue and to make sure that we don't automatically dismiss or, you know, poke fun at or whatever, or like write them off as being uh, dumb because a lot of them are smart people. They're just misinformed mm-hmm. or they just have not done enough research. And, you know, a lot of times their children are the ones that they're really trying to protect, which, hundred percent makes sense. And 
you know, I think it's important on, you know, we really consider how we're addressing these situations and not just, you're never going to convince anyone to get a vaccine if you just say, no, well, that's dumb. Here, you know, I'm a healthcare professional. Here you go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and also on the other side, I'll hear some of the anti-vaccine people will say that, well, you the people, I'm not so much convinced that you're trying to harm anybody, but the people that educated you, who gave you your PharmD or MD or whatever, uh, those people are the ones, you know, who have the, the malicious intent or, or the information that they're giving you that we've just blindly accepted because we were students at one point. Uh, the other issue with that is none of none of my professors that I know of work for any of the drug companies that produce <laughs> vaccines, and that's the case most of the time. You may have some that get grant money from vaccine companies or whatever because they're doing research, but there's there be no there be no reason for these vaccine companies or these professors rather to take all this bribe money from vaccines and then just and then somehow tell students that it's okay and then this whole big controversial thing happens over time it just it, it, it there's just too many people involved too much research too many eyes on it that that w- wouldn't go unnoticed so yeah. i think that that's something that to really consider as well yeah and you know but but be conscientious of how you address these things because a lot of children especially are not getting vaccinated because their parents uh, are not vaccinating them or are, are very much against vaccines. And it's our job as healthcare professionals to educate, not to put down or pass judgment on the parents because they're doing it from a good place. It's just wrong information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I definitely should have prefaced it with that. So I'm sure I sounded very flippant about um, the whole thing and how parents think, um, mm-hmm. but you're totally right. They're just, they're, they're informed, um, potentially misinformed but they're trying to protect their kids which is completely understandable um so definitely come at it from that point of view and um, no you, you i don't think you were flipping i was okay, just good. that's my normal response i think my natural response mm-hmm. is to be annoyed and so i have to fight against it so I, that's why i'm bringing it up because i know that's an issue that i've dealt with in the past and caught myself automatically going there in my own head so sure and it's important you know for for us to be able to because we get questions um asked to us and i think the best thing is to be for you and for the patient is to be well informed that way you can answer quickly and confidently because anytime you have to think or hesitate or look it up then they're always going to assume that they know more than you and then they're going to take their which you know sometimes they might know more than you um and then they're not really going to take your recommendation well um so it's important to be knowledgeable about it and be able to say with confidence yes so i mean if you don't want to vaccinate your kids you don't want to vaccinate your kids but they've done studies showing that um the mercury that or the ethyl mercury that's in uh the flu vaccine is not harmful to um humans now as far as the autism thing um so that's that's another concern and they they attribute that to the thimerosal also in in a lot of ways um and so the cdc has looked into it they haven't found any correlation the world health organization has looked into it in multiple different epidemiologic studies in europe and they haven't found anything um and a lot of the concern came with well these kids are getting all these vaccinations when they're young it's just building up so much that it's causing issues down the road so the mmr vaccine has never contained thimerosal uh the varicella the varicella chickenpox vaccine the inactivated polio vaccine and the pneumococcal conjugates, they've never contained thimerosal also. Um, so the main one is the flu vaccine. Um, so there's not like all these vaccines have this preservative that could potentially cause this issue. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that they haven't really shown in any study um, that it is going to cause this issue. Another thing is that they there's now thimerosal out of pretty much all vaccines that, that kids have and the rates of autism are still climbing. Um, that could be because of, you know, different ways of diagnosing these days and all that kind of stuff. But still, it's not like it's completely falling off the map because we've taken thimerosal out of vaccines. And that's the thing that I always address when someone brings that up. It's not just the fact that, oh, well, now we're giving these vaccines, so now we're seeing an increased rise in autism. We didn't have a, a term for autism not too terribly long ago. Uh, we didn't know that certain, you know, that there were certain degrees of it. And there's been so much research and advancement in that area 
that yeah, there's probably more cases of it because we're finally we're able to find mm-hmm. uh, a definitive diagnosis for these patients now, and then help them get treatment or or adjust the way that they learn or however it is. And you know, we actually have a a, ter- a term now, a diagnosis for it, whereas before we maybe didn't, and so it wasn't documented as someone having autism. Yeah, and, and, and I, they're reclassifying things like Asperger's is no longer a thing anymore. It's reclassified as somewhere on the autism spectrum. Um, and if you're a pediatrician or you work with pediatrics, you know, you see that a lot more now. People, kids being diagnosed with, with autism or they're on the, you know, autism spectrum. Um, it's kind of similar to how ADD and ADHD meds are just like way over. I mean, you know, I don't know if they, maybe they need them, maybe they don't a lot of the times, but we're filling a whole bunch of them more than we ever have before. Um, so it's, it's definitely changing as far as child psychology goes. Things are changing with diagnosing, things are changing with treatment. And so it, it's really difficult to, um, con- to attribute that to just flu vaccines or vaccines in general. Right. So yeah, I, don't, I, think the, I think we just got through the controversial part, didn't we? Yeah, That's you, good. You, want to, uh, you got anything else you want to discuss? You want to jump into this patient case? We can jump into the patient case and we can just talk about the uh, antivirals when we go through that. Cool. Yeah. Do you want to do the patient case first and talk about the antivirals as we go through them? Sounds good. All right. So for the patient today, we have AB is a 65-year-old man who presents in mid-January to an urgent care facility, uh, complains of a 24-hour history of fever that has been up to 103 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, also complains of fatigue and all over body aches. Uh, the patient has not been able to keep food down for the last day or so and is still able to drink some water, but just no solid food. Uh, the patient has a passive medical history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. Family history, the, uh, his mother had diabetes, uh, and as far as social history goes, he's currently living at home with his wife. Uh, he did quit smoking about 10 years ago and uh, does drink alcohol occasionally, uh, mostly just in a social setting and will only have like one or two drinks. Uh, home meds, aspirin 81 milligrams. He is on hydrochlorothiazide 25 milligrams, glyburide 5 milligrams, uh, daily metformin. He is doing 850 milligrams twice daily and he is also on Crestor 5 milligrams. So the patient, again, is complaining of having uh, fever, fatigues, body aches, and uh, also saying that he's got a non-productive cough. Um, his labs are all checking out, um, except his BP is 150 over 92. And uh, he says that his blood pressure fluctuates between that and around 140 over 90 uh, pretty regularly at home. And chest x-ray came back negative for pneumonia. And there was, all, like I said, none of his labs were really out of, out of the ordinary. Uh, his A1C, they checked as well. And that was a 7.1%. So he's right around goal for his A1C. Cool. So basically, if you've been working in clinics anywhere for the last few weeks, this dude is pretty much screaming flu. Right. So gets a flu rapid influenza test and uh, comes back positive. So now we're going to treat the patient. Yeah. So and there's we can treat, you know, and he's healthy enough to where we could treat him outpatient and let him go. Right. Doesn't have to be hospitalized. No complications with ammonia though he is 65 so that's a high risk age group the hospitalizations are by far the highest in 65 and older um and they're pretty high in 54 to 65 but um this guy we're not going to hospitalize so what are what are the um some treatment options what are we looking at so the the most common one that you'll see is the ulcetamivir and basically that's going to block those end spikes and that's Tamiflu. Exactly, Tamiflu. And then, so that's going to block those end spikes. And what that does is that as the, the virus can still replicate inside the first host cell. However, when it tries to leave the cell membrane and then go and find a new host cell to replicate further, so all the viral, viral progeny to try to exit the cell, it 
will bind to those cell surface receptors again, but there's no way for the neuraminidase to actually cleave that connection and allow those, those viral progeny to leave. So it stays stuck on the host cell. And even though there's multiple viral progeny, they kind of die off with that cell because they can't find a new host cell and replicate further. Mm-hmm. So it prevents essentially viral replication and spreading to other cells. Exactly. And then a lot of times they, uh, you know, you'll see Tamiflu and then they will also just give like something to treat uh, the symptoms as well. So you'll see a lot of like bromfed, mm-hmm. um, bromfenaramine, and then uh, pseudofedrin as well. Um, and, you know, the cough and cold type products. And then you will see uh, sometimes something for nausea if the patient is, is vomiting pretty bad. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about like the Tussianex, the hydrocodone syrups? I mean, you know, if the patient has just a horrible, horrible cough and it's, you know, causing pain, things like that, then, then possibly, um, you know, I think they need to be used short term for sure. Yeah. And you need to pay attention to the dosing as well. So like they have like Hydromet or Hycodan, which is the hydrocodone and the uh, homotryptine, mm-hmm. I believe is the antihistamine included in that. Uh, and it can be dosed... Um, more frequently than say like Tussinex, um, whereas Tussinex has an extended release formulation, so it should only be being dosed um, twice a day. And I have seen recently where some providers were trying to uh, dose it four times a day, not realizing that it was the extended release formulation. So if you are going subscri- to uh, prescribe a Hycodan or a hydrocodone-based cough syrup, then I think it's definitely a good idea to figure out which one you are and what the dosing looks like. Definitely. And yeah, like you said, short term, I mean, I, I definitely like to keep it to three days or so, especially with the issues we're already having with opioids in general. Um, but things, especially for cough, apparently they don't really work very well in general. Yeah. Um, so keep that in mind too. And, and there's another uh, brand. It's only available as a brand name, but it's uh, called Tuzistra. And it's a codeine and chlorpheniramine, whereas Tussinex is hydrocodone and chlorpheniramine put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Tuzistra is, is taking the, I guess, the level of the opioid down a little bit. And so it's no longer a C2. And uh, maybe an option if you are worried about the patient um, being released on a C2. Or uh, in some states where, let's say, a nurse practitioner can't prescribe right, right. a C2, that might also be a good option as long as their insurance will cover it, being yep. brand name only. Very true. And uh, But like we said, Tamiflu is definitely going to be the most uh, common. There's also Zanamivir, which is Relenza. Um, it's actually a inhalation. And there's a Paramivir, which is Rapavab. And uh, that's an infusion that they would probably only give in the hospital. Generally, Tamiflu uh, treatment dose is 75 milligrams twice a day for five days. Um, and this guy, did you say he was living with his mom? Uh, wife. Wife. So, you know, you might give his wife 75 milligrams uh, once a day for 10 days. That's the prophylactic dosing. Um, generally, so this guy presented, I think, one day after symptoms. So within 24 hours is the best time. That's when you're going to see the most benefit. Um, but um, you can have good benefit up to 48 hours after symptom onset. Um Basically, generally, what is Tamiflu going to do? Probably decrease your flu days by about a day. Um, some people might be like, well, that, you know, that stinks. That's not very good. You know, you got to do kind of a cost benefit analysis there. Um, if that's going to keep you at work for one extra day and you, you know, you've got to pay $80 for the prescription, it might actually be worth it. Um, but if you're young and otherwise healthy and it's, you know, it's not going to keep you away from work as long as you're not contagious. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe you don't want it. So um, we'll let the clinicians make that decision. You know, and I think that it's it's patient-specific because I talked to, uh, when I was an intern, or I guess probably probably even before I was in pharmacy school, because it was around 2009, um, so it was probably right before I got into pharmacy school, uh, I talked to a pharmacist who I was working for as a technician at the time, and uh, he had gotten H1N1, and I remember asking him kind of the same thing about Tamiflu and well, I mean, is it even worth it? And for him, he was so sick that he said, oh, heck, yeah, 24 hours more of that would have been terrible. So he yep. was more than happy to, to pay the, the money to get Tamiflu. And most insurance companies now pay for it. 
Yeah, and they have seen benefit up to five days out from symptom onset. But like I said, the best benefit is within 48 hours. And if it doesn't, you know, not only does it decrease your flu days, but it also um, improves symptoms overall, potentially. So that's not just what they say, but there was um, a trial done comparing Tamiflu 75 uh, twice a day for five days to Tamiflu 150 twice a day for five days to placebo. Um, It was published in Lancet Journal back in 2000. It was by uh, Nicholson and colleagues, but uh, they basically found that the 75 and the 150 didn't really provide significant uh, differences. The 150 was a little bit better, but um, just decreased flu time by a few hours overall. Um, It wasn't a huge study, about 726 patients. 475 of them had confirmed um, influenza. The others weren't necessarily confirmed. They called it influenza-like illnesses, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but the overall, the, um, the Tamiflu 75 milligrams, um, compared to placebo, um, decreased flu duration by about 35 hours. If given within the first, um, I think they actually did 36 hours, um, but 36 to 48 or so. They actually saw a little bit better benefit when it was given within 24 hours. Um, I believe it was about a 43 hour reduction in flu days. So if given within a day, potentially you could have almost two days um, flu reduction based on this study. Uh, but the general recommendations for Tamiflu are about, it's going to decrease your flu days by about one. So uh, that's the data on Tamiflu, which I wasn't really aware of. I just always said one day, but there are actually specific um, hours to it, to how much benefit you get. Right. And yeah, the other thing is, you know, we said 75 milligrams twice a day. That's obviously the the adult dose. Uh, right. It comes yeah. available as a 30 milligram capsule and a 45 milligram capsule as right. well uh, for children. And then it also comes as a suspension. Yep. Um, yep. A lot of times when we have a really bad flu season like we are now, the suspension we run out of and um, it is something available to where you can take the capsules, open them up and compound the suspension yourself if it is unavailable um, now you need to check your state laws because this may different differ from state to state. Uh, but I know that you, it is possible as long as it's been confirmed on back order, um, y- it is possible to compound it. But you got to be really, really careful with doing that because again, if it's available, then you're technically manufacturing the drug uh, because it's a readily available medication from mm-hmm. a manufacturer. So you you don't want to flirt with that line. So you'd only do that in severe cases where it's just absolutely not available. Um, and also insurance companies too, a lot of them will override for brand name Tamiflu. So now that's available generically, if you have suspension and the brand name, but not in the generic and it's on manufacturer back order from generic companies, then, uh, you know, contact the insurance company if you're, especially for you pharmacists and see if you can get an override. Um, especially, you know, suspension is obviously being used for a child, then it's definitely can can help them out right. significantly. More probably more important for them than a generally healthy eighteen to sixty four year old. Right, um, and it is approved down to fourteen days old. So um, most anyone could have Tamiflu um, if they needed it. So, so a couple like real quick uh, drug drug interactions with Tamiflu. Not really all that many, but um, it does have a interaction with warfarin potentially. Um, which it may enhance the anticoagulant effects of warfarin. And it's probably going to be considered a very minor interaction, but just know that, that is available, especially if someone was on, uh, you know, maybe multiple medications right. or they had um, label INRs already or something like that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So just be aware that there is a very potential or a very small potential of a, of a minor interaction with that. Um, also with clopidogrel, has another mild to moderate interaction. And this one's not as serious, but basically the clopidogrel can decrease the concentration of the ulcitamivir. Um, this is based on more case reports, things like that, but that is a potential as well. Um, and then the one that actually Lexicomp gives it a, a D as far as interaction is probenicid. So we don't really see too much probenicid being used anymore. Uh, but they actually recommend considering a change if a patient is given ulcitamivir um, with probenicid, um, either at least reducing the ulcitamivir um, dose, reducing the ulcitamivir dose if 
probenicid is given at the same time. Uh, there's been case reports of thrombocytopenia when this combination uh, has been given. So uh, I don't know how serious that really is, but it's something to at least know that it's out there, and it's probably very, very rare, but there are interactions apparently. So Yeah, because I, I don't think people generally think of Tamiflu having interactions, so good right. to be aware of them. And so those are the main ones. Uh, quickly, we can run through a couple of other things that you've probably heard about recently because um, people, you know, find it out online that there's other things other than Tamiflu that they can try to use. Um, one is elderberry, mm-hmm. and the other is oscillococcinum. You want to talk about elderberry? Yeah, so elderberry has some has some trials. They're, they're all very small. Uh, it doesn't seem to be all that effective when they look at it from a, you know, a clinical trial standpoint. Uh, there are people who will just absolutely swear by it as far as their own personal case study. But uh, there's the data is not really all that great as far as backing it up. And the other thing to consider, and this gentleman actually would be, uh, this would be an issue for him, is one of the, it does uh, potentially interact with sulfonylureas. So this patient has an A1C of 7, so we know he's around goal, so his, his blood glucose is where we would want to see it. He's also on glyburide sulfonylurea, and so if this person was taking elderberry as well as his glyburide, especially if he's taking it while he's sick like this, his uh, he would be potentially at risk for hypoglycemia because he's taking sulfonylurea, which is going to lower your blood glucose regardless of whether or not you ate, and uh, you combine that with elderberry, which could potentially lower your blood glucose as well, and he could have some hypoglycemia. So keep that in mind. Evidence is, you know, okay. Other than that, you know, I think it would be generally probably okay to, to yeah. take. Um, it's not going to hurt them necessarily to try elderberry, but I, I wouldn't uh, put too much faith in, in right. its effectiveness. And as far as over-the-counters and uh, herbals go, it's actually not that bad of evidence, you know, right. when you look at them. But like you said, they're small studies. Um, so an interesting option, but if, especially if you're a patient, always run this by your doctor or pharmacist so they can check out what you're on and make sure that there's not going to be any issues. Um, same with oscillococcinum. Um, so this one's a little bit different. What it is, is a homeopathic medication. Um, I won't go too far into what homeopathic medications are, but they are distinctly different from conventional medications. Um, they have a whole different idea of how they work basically. Uh, the idea behind them is like cures like. Uh, so basically something that can cause or elicit symptoms. If you take it in really teeny tiny amounts, diluted like a whole bunch, um, that it actually supports your body's uh, adaptive immune processes to prevent those symptoms from happening. Um, for instance, if an onion, when you're cutting it, causes, um, causes um, you know, runny nose and itchy watery eyes, then if you take itsy bitsy tiny pieces of onion diluted to like the nth degree, um, then it'll actually help prevent um, issues from, let's say, allergic rhinitis or something like that. So that's the idea behind it. Oslococcinum, um, they actually did a Cochrane review. Like I said, obviously it's supposed to prevent and treat um, flu symptoms. They actually did a Cochrane review back in 2000. They looked at four studies. One was for the prevention of influenza, three of the other ones for for treatment of influenza. Um, Basically, the results weren't great. Um, As far as prevention, it was no different. As far as treatment, um, it wasn't really considerable either. I think the best they could find was that it might um, decrease flu days by like 0.28 days. Uh, which is like five or six hours. So, you know, it's it's a review of some other trials. Um, so probably not worth the money, in my opinion. But the good thing about homeopathic medicines is that because they're so dilute, generally they're not going to interact with any other medications. So you could, you could confidently say that it's probably safe for most any patient. Um, that being said, they don't usually study homeopathic medications with conventional medicine to see if they interact. So... You never really know, but generally, um, I subscribe to the fact that they're generally safe, but not necessarily effective. So that's if I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Oslococcinum. Does that sound okay to you? Sounds good. Let me know if I botched it. And I think, and uh, in, in, by the way, too, disclaimer, we're not advocating for putting onion droplets in your eyes. Yes. Don't do that. <laughs> that, no. was a, that was an example. So. Yes. And by the way, <laughs> usually they're sublingual tablets. 
under yeah. the tongue. So yes, not in your eyes. Don't, don't put do it. That. Don't put onions in your eyes. And don't compound them either. For your eyes. <laughs> cool. So yeah, that's that's some of the stuff you you definitely will probably see um, during the flu season. Um, but yeah, anything else you want to add? Not really. I mean, his um, we don't have to go through his other stuff, but his blood pressure was a little high. Um, but the main thing you're going to be focusing on today with this visit is this guy's got the flu, so let's handle the flu, right? Right. And if we were going to change some things just to refresh the memory, uh, he's on hydrochlorothiazide, so I would definitely recommend uh, him switching to either clothaldone or endapamide. Sure. Um, that Those alone could be enough to get him down to a better blood pressure and he uh would need something he's got type 2 diabetes and some other risk factors so those are the two that are actually evidence-based so endapamide or clothaldone would be my two that i would recommend um besides just evaluating him for maybe an ace or an arm um, depending on his kidney function right. long term and things um the he's on the crestor uh he needs to be on a high intensity statin based on mm-hmm. his risk factors so I would bump that up to probably 20 or 40, uh, or if he was going to change to a torvastatin, then 40 or 80. Of well, Lipitor is the torvastatin. You mean? No, he, he was on the, he's on the Crestor. Oh, is originally. he? Yeah, okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, and so he uh, he, he has, um, could, could switch to that. And then, yeah, uh, maybe the, the sulfonylurea, I would definitely switch to a shorter acting, uh, like uh, glimepiride or something. Glimepiride is the longer acting. And so it um, would not be good for someone that's approaching the, the realm of being classified as elderly. Yeah. So I would probably avoid that one. But other than that, not good. too much. Yeah. And you could reassess his aspirin, not the most important thing, but he's uh, he's getting up there. So I mean, but 65, it's it's probably fine as long as he's not high risk for bleeding. So. Right. Cool. So, yeah. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Yeah. Please uh, let us know. What you think, if you have any ideas about uh, topics you want us to cover, if you want to be a guest in the podcast, reach out to us. You can uh, reach us by email, uh, mcorbino at coreconsolerx.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to, to the website, coreconsolerx.com, and that's C-O-R, consult. Uh, and then also any form of social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and... Also, make sure you are subscribing to Alexa, our Alexa Flash Briefing. So if you have a, if you have an Alexa in the house, it's definitely a very quick way to keep up to date. Um, so the Alexa Flash Briefing. And if you already use the Alexa Flash Briefing or if you already listen to our podcast, uh, we would really, really appreciate uh, if you would leave a comment and a rating. Uh, that would help us know how we're doing. Uh, if we're terrible, I prefer you to email us so we can switch yes. it before leaving a one star. <laughs> but uh, let us know. Let us know what we can do to, to improve. And if you do like it, definitely please uh, leave a rating so that we know that it's up to y'all's standards. So that's all we got. We'll see you next time and message us if we can do anything for you.